Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I have never seen anything like this. I've been an economist for 50 years. I went through the Great Recession. I have never seen such raging incompetence ever. You issue the currency in which you borrow. And that means that um, uh, you are never going to have the problems that Greece had or Argentina did. Buy long-term securities, you drive up their price, you drive down their yield. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, America, we know, is very different to Europe or Australia in that it really does let the free market forces go that little bit further. And as we'll explore today... That applies in planning, because whereas in most Western countries, cities are funded at least in part by central government funding or by state funding in America, they're left largely to their own devices. Now, is that a good thing to see cities die when an industry fails, for example? Well, this week, we're going to talk to one man who believes there's an anti-urban bias in America, which is holding the country back. And he's written a book about it, which we'll talk about this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So there is a Glenn Frey song, uh, and Steve's not heard this, but uh, Glenn Frey, of course, one of the Eagles, you might remember, his, his song was You Belong to the City. You were born in the city, concrete under your feet. It's in your blood, it's in your moves for a man on the street. I can't believe you've never heard that song. I probably but have, but didn't pay much attention. I, I won't it. sing it for you. You'll be very Thank pleased God. to know. But look, I spent uh, a chunk of my childhood living in a city, but then we moved to rural Cheshire mm. in the northeast of northwest of England. My mum now lives in a town called Northwich, where the shops are closed they've got a brand new shopping centre and it's it's pretty deserted not much goes on there compare that to London um, even in this supposed downturn and you'll see it, uh, Steve. I mean, you're living in London sort of uh, intermittently. I, I mean, the, the city is still bustling. The cafes are full. You go down Oxford Street, you can't move for people. It's congested as ever. Uh, cities are where money is made, uh, but they're also, you know, can be quite dirty. They're polluted. They're crime ridden. Uh, that is certainly the case here, possibly more so in America. But Richard McGahey uh, reckons there's an anti-urban bias in the United States. He's written a book called Unequal Cities, in which he reckons that reducing the anti-urban bias will reduce inequality in the United States. And it raises some interesting economic questions about uh, urban versus regional economies. And uh, he joins me and Steve. Welcome to the welcome to the podcast. So, is it Richard or Rick when you're on your Zoom? It says Rick. Uh, Rick. I'm used to Rick, so that's fine. Right. I live with Rick. That's okay. I live with Steve. So, first of all, congratulations on one of the most well-referenced books I think I've ever seen. In the, in that the book itself finishes on page 197, but by the time you finish all the acknowledgments, references, and the index, you're at page 300. So it's two thirds book, one third references. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have you don't have to write as much that way. I was a little uh, surprised when we <laughs> put it together. So uh, look, you make a point about urban density and 
prosperity. Uh, and actually, you quote another economist, uh, Edward Glazer, uh, that urban density is the only path to prosperity. Well, I guess in a post-agricultural world, we do need to live together closely to make money. Is that the point you're trying to make there? Yes. And I, one of the points of the book, and I think of interest to your listeners, is what Glazer is a, a very mainstream economist, totally rooted in standard microeconomics models. And so one of the things the book tries to do is explore what do those models get right about cities and what do they get wrong uh, and so bringing Glazer in at that point is on something that I think is true. Cities are the hubs and certainly the modern economy, GDP and nations depends on their cities. Uh, trade depends on them. Much of our growth uh, depends on it now and in the future. So for our era, cities are what drives the economy. And Steve, I mean, this gets to the idea of complex economies, doesn't it? If you get a whole lot of people working together, this is where innovation comes from. And also, I mean, if you take a look at uh, uh, books like The Competitive Advantage of Nations, and I've currently, my mind's yeah. gone on the author at the moment, but the proposition he makes there is that it's often what causes innovation is rivalry between related companies in the same area. And then consequently, you can find that what we, what we characterize as the output of a country is actually the output of a city. Um, and he, one of the obvious examples, what used to be an obvious example, is Italian sports cars. Lamborghini, Ferrari, et cetera, et cetera. And they all came out of uh, families in the same region competing with each other uh, for mm-hmm. high-end high end consumers. So that the spirit of innovation came out of these rival groups in the same urban uh, agglomeration. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um, I have some Detroit stories that are very similar about the rise of auto in the United States. So how much of the d- GDP that's created in the States is coming out of cities then? I mean, is it is it is it just like nine... Like 95 or 98 percent? Is it that dominant? Um, not quite that much, but it's close to 90. And the UK is uh, closer to 90 in the high mid 90s, uh, according to the OECD. The United States is 85 plus, closing in on 90. That we, we, we've recently done some oil exporting, uh, energy exporting, astonishingly. Not all of that comes out of cities, although the infrastructure that ships it out is in cities. But it's uh, it's well into the, the high 80s now in the United States. So to, to so to achieve that, I mean, there has to be investment in those cities, doesn't it? I mean, that's you know, there's I mentioned that you know, cities. It's not all good. Uh, there is congestion. There's pollution. They all need to be controlled. It, that becomes an expense, and obviously, the more uh, uh, centralized the greater those problems are. Sure. Cities have two roles, at least two roles in that. One is simply the agglomeration of finance, just as you agglomerate other industries uh, and innovate, whether or not we think those innovations are actually good things for the economy. But the rise of uh, modern finance is an urban phenomenon. It's it's been one for centuries, actually. But the financialization of the economy uh, that we experienced, I think, regrettably, is driven by cities as well. So just as you had innovation in automobiles uh, and innovation in other products, you've had innovation of a sort in finance, uh, and that's part of it. Then the second part is you've got to raise money to pay for these things. Classically, for standard economists, these are so-called externalities or public goods, things that the market won't take care of, although they're quite grudging about admitting that the market can't take care of everything. 
but then you've got to raise taxes and pay for them. And that, that shows you the unequal distribution uh, of money and power. One of the, the main thrusts of the book is if cities, which I think they are, are the hubs of innovation and growth, why are they so persistently unequal? They're both unequal internally in each city and they're unequal when you compare cities to each other. That's, and it's not a process that market economics has eroded. If anything, it's, it's heightened that inequality. So the inequality within the city, what you're talking about, how you've got rich and poor. So you've got the sort of like in a, in a, in a it tends to be the case in, in almost everywhere in the world. You've got inner city uh, squalor almost in many cases. And then you've got the wealthy people living in the uh, in, in the suburbs where they can have nice lawns and good schools yeah. and all that stuff. Yes, yes. And in a few places like London and New York, some of the super wealthy will, or the extremely wealthy will live downtown in little pockets. But the bulk of it now is the suburban form, really pioneered by the United States after World War II. Right. And then uh, then the difference between cities. So, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, Detroit. And mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a city which, you know, uh, had its time, but is is suffering now because it was dependent on really one one industry, which oh, is in decline. Uh, oh, no, it was actually the automobile industry is still quite thriving globally and even in the United States. It's just not thriving in Detroit. So at one point, Detroit had the second highest per capita income in the United States after New York. It even trickled down to African-American workers there. They were still at a lower level of wages than their white counterparts, but they were better off than blacks other places in the United States, largely because they were in a, a union. Detroit uh, is a gigantic city, if you've ever been, uh, and at its peak, it was two and a half million people. It's now under 700,000 on the same physical foot- footprint. That's staggering, isn't it? So, yeah. Uh, yeah so my uh, departed father-in-law uh, comes from uh, that part of his world. So his family was all in all in the motor industry. So if there's no motor industry, there's no jobs, and that gets down to, doesn't it? That if you and I think it's the situation more in the United States than certainly it is here. I mean, cities are by and large self-funded. I mean, they raise taxes. They, uh, you know, that they're responsible for their own finances. We have a far more centralized approach in the UK. Yes, and the, there's yes. One, there's one of the problems you get there. I mean, if if, if a city's in decline, it can't raise taxes, it can't replace its industry. That's right. And uh, th- there are still quite a few automotive jobs in, in the Detroit region. And one of the points of the book is the distinguish between the metropolitan regions and the core cities. But it's just this, the political city of Detroit itself at the center of the region has very little new auto investment. But there's still plenty of automotive jobs in the region. And one of the... Uh, peculiarities, particularly of American development, although you can see this pattern in other cities globally, is this productive city, economically productive city at the center of a region, but the region is surrounded, surrounds the city with separate governments, suburban governments that are independent, and as you say, have their own tax bases. We do a lot more self-funding or funding through our states, our regional governments, which are much stronger in the US than they are most other places in the world. Uh, the net result of that has been that cities have been left increasingly on their own. The federal government share of money going to cities has fallen substantially since the 1960s. And so cities are pressed really onto their own declining tax bases to deal with problems that rightly ought to be regional or metropolitan, if not national. But I mean, Steve, that's I mean, you know, that's uh, that's an economist's dream, though, isn't it? Because everyone's competing against each other. You've got competition between cities. That's got to be a good thing, isn't it? You get the the best result that way. 
This is where he plays devil's advocate, by the way, Richard. <laughs> you can just, uh, I adopt a disbelieving tone in my voice. It's very subtle, but it's, no, it's, got, there, but it's there. Radio doesn't, doesn't give the, isn't the tone all that well, so I had to actually elaborate there. Yeah. I mean, the, it, one thing I found uh, striking about American cities when I visited them is the extent to which the inner city was a slum. Yes. Uh, and that, to me, reflects the crazy war on, you know, war on drugs that America went through, where um, it, it where it became so violent in the heart of the city, and then the violence was met by police violence as well. That wealthy people moved to the suburbs, um, and that seems to be something which is very distinctively American versus what's happened in Europe and uh, the rest of the world, where. Uh, the wealthy, in many ways, move to the heart of the city because that's where the fun and the action is. So to what extent is what you're seeing in terms of unequal cities a specifically American phenomenon? The, America is worse than other places, but there are some characteristics to share. We, the kind of, America is built on an anti-urban bias. Thomas Jefferson, uh, our great uh, avatar of liberty, but also, of course, a, a slaveholder, said that, and this is a quote from Jefferson, I view great cities as pestilential to the morals, health, and liberties of man. Uh, when there was a yellow fever epidemic in the city of Philadelphia, Jefferson said, I'm paraphrasing, well, it may do some good and it will kill off a good chunk of the population of Philadelphia. So he was totally anti-urban, and that's built into a lot of Americans, uh, America's governing structures uh, and, and politics. It's given an extra boost in post-World War II America because of uh, structural racism. Uh, there's not really no other way to put it. You had a large movement of American blacks in the 1920s from the South when agriculture declined and became mechanized. Then they moved to cities to work in industrial jobs in the same way that we drew in immigrants from Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, around racism, then, the suburbs that grew after World War II uh, gave us this pattern that you uh, correctly see today uh, of largely minority and poor central cities, even in thriving economic regions. So you think then this anti-urban bias that you're talking about, you, you're saying so cities are more productive uh, because we're getting people together, you get that exchange of ideas, you get investment, you get education, you get specialization, you get all all of those good things. But this anti-urban bias is stopping those cities prospering. So that's holding back the potential growth for the U.S. Is that your argument? Yes, absolutely. And uh, both it holds back growth in the aggregate and also makes inequality worse because if the city at the center, as you referred to earlier, tries to do something on its own dime, on its own expenditure to fight inequality, they will run out of money and they will meet other both political and economic forces that make that quite difficult. And the book is built uh, on three case studies of cities that did try to uh, improve uh, equality and largely failed, I'm afraid. That's New York. Well, Detroit, New York went bankrupt, didn't it, in the, in the 70s? Uh, yeah, so, well, they didn't officially sign it, but they had the papers ready to sign. They didn't have to sign it. Uh, but in yes, in the 1970s, New York just simply ran out of money and its ability to pay the bills. We were, uh, the city was one day away from officially declaring bankruptcy. Detroit did actually enter formal bankruptcy uh, when it uh, faced this problem. But New York uh, did, and then New York rebounded on the basis of, as I said before, financialization, which in turn brought more inequality to the city, right? Finance is not as uh, the jobs in finance pay tremendously well for the people at the top, but they are not 
to equal paying throughout the structure of the industry. But the finance that the cities are getting is all by city taxes. There's always some of it hand downs from money that's collected by state governments and federal governments or uh, what's the mix of money? Yeah, so some, some of that and it flows through kind of welfare state expenditures matter for cities. Uh, Social Security is, is our, our retirement system has uh, helped cities in Florida grow tremendously. Uh, and some of our national health plans. But by and large, there's still a transfer in the United States from rich states to poor states. New York is a net payer. New York State is a net payer into the federal system. And southern states that have weak tax bases, much less generous welfare states, are net receivers of federal funds. So there's still an outflow that way. The cities get some money back from the states, but New York City just the five boroughs of New York City alone produce a huge amount of the state's tax revenue. So some of that is cycled back to the city. Arguably, New York City would be better off if it could just keep all of the revenue generated there in the first place. What is, so, Steve, what do you think is the, the best structure for, for when you're looking at – I mean, it sounds like we can start by saying, well, America hasn't got it. Uh, um, well, I mean, this often comes back to the fact that only the federal government creates money. Mm. And yet you've then got uh, governments operating at the state and the city level, which are expected to be self-funding. And by definition, then, they've got to tax more than they spend. So, uh, you know, or at least tax as much as they spend. And if they don't, then they can go bankrupt, which is that situation in New York almost found itself in and effectively Detroit did. So, and we've seen a similar sort of thing in the UK uh, where the austerity programs of the government were enforced on local councils. So the government said, we're going to, we're going to spend less, but we're going to spend less by giving less to the councils. When I mean, the councils started going bankrupt or had to cut back on services as a result. So in that sense, the, the local governments and the cities become the instruments for imposing austerity. And therefore, you see the worst damages in the cities rather than the rural areas. And the cities have got all the problems that need to be funded. So, I mean, if you take where... So, so Steve and I are sitting uh, in a studio in uh, in uh, Surrey, beyond the M25. So, uh, we're not paying any taxes into London. Uh, we don't have any of the problems of London here. We don't have the crime, for example. We don't have the congestion and pollution. Uh, but a lot of people who live here are working in London, but not paying for the blight that those jobs perhaps are are creating. I'm paying for an extortionate amount to get into London, but generally they're not funding that capital city. So, I mean, that becomes a problem as well uh, where you're getting regional areas which are feeding into the city. If, if the city's self-funding, it's sort of subsidising people living uh, in the outskirts of that city. And there's something about cities in our economy uh, that, where this is widespread. So these regional economic gaps, the gaps between the wealthier regions in a country and the less wealthy regions have increased across the OECD since the year 2000. Now, economists, and Steve, you would appreciate this, say, oh, well, markets will level that out, right? Cities will get too expensive, people will move other places, They'll, and cities will converge. This is a core belief of mainstream urban economics. They're not converging. Uh, we don't see that. It's one of the stylized facts that really calls into question the standard urban economic model of convergence where they see that model sees cities like competitive firms in a perfect market they'll compete over taxes and regulation and they see equilibrium rolling rather than disparity right and everything will level out the market will level all that stuff out and the cities will find an equilibrium we don't see that happening instead we see growth and more concentration of wealth and power 
in some cities and decline in others. So we'll come back and explore this a bit more. We're going to take a, a, a quick break, but uh, let's let's pick up on this idea of competition between cities and how that's how that's playing out in in the U.S. and uh, you know maybe, maybe we'll look at other parts of the world as well. We'll be back in just a second. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we are looking at uh, cities and urban disparity and whether, in fact, uh, the U.S.'s growth is being held back because of Unequal Cities, which is the title of Rick McGahey's book. Uh, we're talking about that. He's joining me and Steve on the podcast today. So this idea of competition between cities in, in the United States, which, which ones are, uh, are leading the pack at the moment and which ones are falling behind and why is that? Uh, the leaders uh, are still there are cities in the southern part, uh, particularly large cities in Texas and Florida. California cities are still doing well in spite of the gloom and doom that you read about California, the economic position of places like Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Metro and the San Francisco Bay Area Metro are still quite strong. Uh, and we have a long-standing, our older industrial cities, uh, which I think is, again, similar to places in Europe, uh, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, that were thriving cities. Uh, at one point, the change uh, in, in manufacturing, right, the deindustrialization of the United States hurt those cities, and they have not recovered. That's actually I was going to actually raise with you, Richard. The, to what extent is this is driven by deindustrialization and the relocation of manufacturing jobs to the third world? Uh, for places like Detroit, Cleveland, uh, Milwaukee, a good deal of it is driven that way. Uh, you saw some of that location within the United States before it went to the third world. We moved industry to the southern part of the United States, the old Confederacy that. Uh, where the labor regulations are much lax. The, again, these states have more power than regional governments in Europe so that a state like Alabama or South Carolina can declare itself anti-union, so-called right-to-work states. And so, so there is still quite a bit of automotive production in the United States. It's just shifted out of the old, more unionized industrial cities to the north to uh, anti-union cities in the south. And then, of course, to Mexico, and then, as you say, around the world. And then you've got companies or cities, I should say, well, they are acting like companies, aren't they, that are trying to win businesses to come to their cities. So they're offering all sorts of uh, financial incentives, basically paying money to these companies. 
Sure, which is a, which is a fool's errand. Most of the growth of cities doesn't come from moving new factories into them. A little bit of that in the South uh, and World War II production had some effects in that way. But most uh, growth comes more internally. If you look at the growth of Silicon Valley in California, uh, Mariana Mazzucato and many people have pointed out, and you all certainly know, a lot of that is actually defense and government spending. It wasn't just Steve Jobs sitting in a garage. It was massive government spending uh, on, on the things that became the core components of the computer industry. But once that gets going with that, with that injection, the cities do then grow. Uh, they draw talent. They draw uh, high-skilled engineering uh, firms move there because they want to capture that talent. And over time, for a while, at least those uh, those places can grow and sustain themselves competitively and outcompete others. And you're not going to have 20 Silicon Valleys in the United States. The mistake American uh, uh, public officials make think, oh, I can copy that. I'll just build Silicon Valley in the middle of Nebraska or Ohio. And, and the Biden administration is trying to do some of that with semiconductor spending, but it's very hard to do that. Economies aren't going to sustain that many of those centers, which were, of course, in turn built with substantial government support. And yet, you know, fantastic sums sometimes offered. So what, uh, in your book, I think you pointed to $3.4 billion, which is what New York was promising Amazon for, for, for a second headquarters. $3.4 yeah, no, billion. Yeah. And- yeah. This is it's one place where progressive and mainstream economists agree with each other that these subsidies uh, do not. There's no empirical evidence that they produce uh, substantial or sustainable job gains or are really decisive in why the companies move there. Now, the companies aren't fools when they see governments willing to give away their tax base. They'll take it. But their location decisions are often driven by. Uh, other factors. The net effect, however, of giving away your tax base like that, if you're a state or a city, is that you don't have money, which was already constrained. You've reduced even further your ability to fund the necessary things, the things actually that would help you grow better education, better public housing, better infrastructure. So it seems like, you know, there's an, an, an organic element to all of this that said, you know, depending on, you know, the, the time in history, there are parts of the country which are going to grow fast. Like for example, Silicon Valley, then uh, and the decline of the of the motor industry uh, in in Michigan or in, in Detroit. Right. So how do how do you cope with that? Because I mean, it, because you've got such a vast economy and the the ability to move more within such a, a, a diverse and broad geographic area, how do you cope with the fact that you are going to have cities that are just going to grow and others are going to wane? Do you just let them let them die? Or do you pump money in, which could be seen as an inefficient way of maintaining a population? But the population is still there, of course, unless people move out, in which case you've got a lot of empty shopping centers and, uh, and, and, and right. a crime center. Yeah, no, that's right. But again, the, the, the standard economic solution would say let them move out. If, they're like, if cities are like little companies, then let capital and labor be mobile and even finance them to move out. Uh, Glazer, Ed Glazer once said provocatively after the hur- Hurricane Katrina destroyed New Orleans, well, maybe we should just give every resident of New Orleans a voucher instead of rebuilding the infrastructure of the city and just let it sit there and let them make decisions about what they want to do with it. It's kind of... So I give them a train ticket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of neoclassical economics gone mad, you know, just like it's all spending in that way and you just would walk away from the infrastructure and history and the people that would still be living there. But to some extent, 
that is the vision. You want to move things around. And you certainly don't want to get in a situation where you're pumping money into an industry that can't sustain itself. But the people who depend on that industry and the cities that depend, that's where you need the help. It could be in the form of retraining dollars. There might be the ability to, to locate uh, some spending, some industrial functions there that could sustain themselves. You have to be careful with that, uh, that people, that just the owners of the firms don't capture it and, and the, the funds don't flow to the working people there. There are things you can do for small business development uh, and around education and workforce that actually have been shown to have some empirical success. You're not, and Detroit's not going to go back to two and a half million people. So what's Detroit uh, like now, then? So now it's seen this big decline in population. What is it? Sort of like uh, derelict shopping centers? I mean, it sounds like it would be a depressing place. Part of it's- it has gone back to uh, not all of it. There's a little corn downtown where there's some growth going on and people trying very hard to make it work. But parts of it have reverted to prairie. You drive through uh, Detroit and you'll see trees growing where, where there are houses. Uh, again, with that, the physical footprint of the place was so large, you could f- you can fit simultaneously San Francisco, Boston, and the island of Manhattan would all fit within the physical boundary of just the city of Detroit. Wow. So, so the city is left with trying to deliver fire, police, sanitation, education, uh, utilities across this enormous physical footprint with a, with a much lower tax base. You, you, Detroit probably should be able to should consolidate its population into closer neighborhoods, but politically that's proved almost impossible. So what you've got is an amplification of inequality. Yeah. The income inequality becoming regional inequality and then one making the other worse. That's right. That's right. And, and, and again, in the United States, you, you always have got to consider the role of structural racism. So oh, yeah. Detroit is yeah. one of the most racially segregated metropolitan areas in the United States surrounded by mostly hostile white suburbs who actually for a while were still growing while the city was losing population. It's not that the whole region is collapsing, but the city at its core is collapsing. That is, as you point out, eventually starts to drag down even those wealthier uh, suburbs, but uh, the city is the one that bears the cost. It seems weird to me, the idea that you let cities die uh, mm-hmm. But, it, it, you know, as you're saying, you know, of course, it makes, you know, sound economic sense if you come from that school of thought that, uh, you know, if it's if it's the best way, then let it happen. But it doesn't happen in Europe, for example. I can't help thinking that's because countries are smaller. So there's not. And and so you haven't got this number of large cities that can grow or breathe. You've, you've got maybe one, two, perhaps maximum of three large cities and you want them to survive because that's all you've got. You can't, you know, you're not. Yeah. You're not going to see Paris die, for example, uh, or even secondary cities in France. The same as in the UK. We're not going to let Manchester die or Birmingham die. You know, you right. you, you right. pump money into them because you want to keep those those urban centres. Do, do you think that's the case, Steve? That's the difference? Oh, it's certainly. I mean, America's in a very, uh, I think, unique case there because what I've seen in Europe is actually, in, in a sense, an anti-rural bias in some mm. ways because, like, for example, of visits I've made to Croatia, I've been driven through towns from you know, going from one city to another and been told, oh, this village is empty. And what happens is there's, there's no um, provision of employment in the local region, so people move to the city when they are old enough to, and you therefore get a decay of the rural areas and a growth of the urban agglomeration. So this this phenomenon of uh, cities declining uh, seems to be very much an American phenomenon. 
And it's that self-funding, it's that uh, self-funding would, element, would, isn't would, it? Would you agree with that or... Um... Yeah, I, th- I think it's more amplified here. You certainly have poor cities in Europe. Uh, we talked about, that, but I think you've got a stronger, you've got stronger welfare states for starters. Much that, so, yeah. That people fall as far as we let them fall in the United States. And I think that mentality is true both for people and for cities here. Uh, there's enormous internal migration has been in the United States is actually now at its lowest point ever. But in the 1920s, the entire southern economy, agricultural economy collapsed. And we had massive movement of uh, blacks into northern cities. Um, we have uh, huge amounts of foreign immigra- uh, immigration now slowed down, particularly under Trump. That actually, by the way, was one of the things that kept our cities thriving. New York and Los Angeles have always been places where immigrants come and give vitality to the to the city. Uh, Detroit has a very poor history of, of immigration uh, coming in. There are immigrants everywhere in the U.S. and Detroit had it at the turn of the century, but they had didn't share in the, the newest waves of immigration. So getting new populations in and we have lots of declining rural areas. They're they're poor and people move to cities and metropolitan areas. I just think we leave the places where people are further behind much more than European uh, city countries do. But there, there are some real basket cases in Europe, too. I don't want to defend American policy in this way, but I don't want to make it exclusively that. I think these dynamics of some cities getting richer and others getting poorer, and then you run into the political structure of the country, how willing is the country uh, to spend money on those declining places? And we've the United States has been pretty unwilling. So what's the answer then for, for America? Because it seems like this is just a regional planning issue, isn't it? And um, and yet, you know, you can't plan regionally if the focus is on self-funding in, in cities. So so what is the answer? One of these peculiarities that I often find that, that, that Europeans or non-Americans don't understand and understand it's it makes sense you to understand it, is how much power our states have, a state like California or Kentucky yeah. or Florida or Texas. But all the more they reason are, then, why, why can't they be involved more in centralized planning for their own particular uh, states then? You know, they can say, well, we've got a couple of major cities, but we've got a couple more that we think could be developed better if we had more investment in education or better transport links or, or whatever. So you have a regional plan for that state. Why is that yeah, not yeah. happening? Well, some of them are. Of course, California now does that. But remember, Ronald Reagan came from California. He was the elected governor here. These political changes, and he was a a creature really of the growth of white suburban power in the United States. And it took some time to get the political economy, mostly the politics, right to where California could be a more progressive state. Uh, These internally within these states, because they've been left free to do what they want, they have been relatively free from demands on providing better welfare state programs for uh, having fair voting processes, you still so we're still battling this in the U.S. Right, that um, states control uh, voting rights, and some of them want to cut those rights, or even in the worst case, threaten to overturn elections. So that fighting these states is a longer term problem. But I think there is progress in some places. It's and it will be centered, I think, in the cities and urban areas in those states. Uh, And then we have to look to eventually build a coalition 
of uh, states who also would be willing to help some poor rural residents. The money that goes to our rural areas in the United States does not aid the rural poor in America. It goes to large agricultural corporations by and large that dominate the landscape and the industry of those uh, rural areas. So, uh, so you're a feudal economy just uh, pretending to be capitalist. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, absolutely. And as we all know, the, the cities, you know, in, in medieval times were thought to be places for freedom. And of course, they are that relative to rural areas if you have a different social identity or it's a place you can go. As well as the innovation piece of it. We talked about innovation before. States sometimes are trying to spark that innovation in cities. And I think that's also a worthwhile experiment by using universities, uh, uh, investing in or bringing in uh, new forms of innovation, uh, increasing the relationships between firms. Steve talked right at the beginning, uh, I think it was about the, how auto firms innovated with each other. And one of the keys to capitalist innovation actually is not to have just pure monopolists, but to have probably oligopolies that compete with each other. They do create innovation. That's part of the Silicon Valley story. It was certainly the story in Detroit, where at one point there were over 120 car companies in the early stages of Detroit, and it consolidated down to the big three. But that helped innovation. Uh, and cities still are the hubs of innovation uh, and uh, and that feed into growth. And, and some, some states have done, are taking positive steps to try and encourage more of that. Well, there's the whole theory around growth polls, isn't there, where you invest in a, in a center and you're going to see that, that, that benefit spreading out to, to the region. And does that apply? Does that work in practice? Well, that's the problem is that we, it works when you've got better distributional mechanisms, right? This isn't all about distribution. There, there's a real production story here. But if the distribution is unequal and allowed to be controlled, this is one of the flaws in the, without getting too wonky, the, the mainstream economics argument is that by letting all these jurisdictions compete, the place where you sit and others and compete on packages of taxes and regulations, that'll produce the best outcome, just as we hear that letting firms compete in that way will produce the best economic outcome. But it also turns out that people can use that advantage to see to take power. Uh, and take political power. This was Joe Stiglitz's critique of that that economic model uh, associated with a guy named Tebut out of Harvard. That we economists tend to ignore power, right? And, and oh yeah, well, yeah, and truly, right? And so that the idea that these places wouldn't just be consumers of wealth, but that would would hold on to it and not allow others to share in it uh, is not in most of these economic models. Uh, and I think that's what we see a lot of when you see these uneven metropolitan areas. You need a larger uh, authority to be able to to negate that that self-dealing that, that people engage in. This, the, the other dimension as well, just as a final uh, point or final question for both of you, I mean, aren't we going to see less urbanization? I mean, you, you talk about the, I mean, the, the benefits of, uh, of people living close to, to each other and companies being close to each other is is innovation. But, you know, in an online world, is that becoming less important? And as we move more towards uh, service-based industries and particularly, you know, online industries, 
we can live everywhere, uh, anywhere. And wouldn't we choose the nicest places to live, which are not going to be uh, downtown in, uh, in in congested cities? Well, uh, downtown London, if you can afford it, or downtown New York is still pretty nice, or Los Angeles are still pretty nice places to live. I'm, I'm surprised by the spread of working from home. It's gone uh, bigger than I thought it would. But most of the moves, at least in the United States, are intra-metropolitan. They're within the same metropolitan economy. They're not people in New York moving to the woods of Colorado and sustaining that way. I don't think that's a sustainable model. You may get some more spreading within a particular metropolitan area, but there are a lot of reasons that people still do. Every time we've had a revolution in communications or technology, people say, well, that's it for cities. They said it about the telegraph, the telephone, uh, Zoom call. Zoom has been brought on now from COVID, gave it a bigger boost, but the technology has not spread it out. Maybe this time will be different, but but cities have remarkable durability in terms of this innovation. And I think it does go to this need to innovate and to spark ideas and to bring different spheres together. So, okay, final words with Steve then. I mean, what do you think the future for cities? And also, how do you cope with the situation where you've got cities growing and then declining in an extreme in the United States? I mean, it happens around the world, but obviously in an extreme because of this focus on you've got to be self-sufficient. Cities have got to be self-sufficient, which is a crazy way of operating, really. Well, being self-sufficient within an organism is not how organisms function properly. (laughs) So there's an error error in thinking that you've got to make each individual component cope for itself. It's like saying, well, your liver's got to you know, your liver has to work on its own and it can't, it can't communicate with the lungs. Uh, that's a recipe for death of the organism, not, uh, not growth or not, not, not sustainability. Mm-hmm. But my big issue is that I think uh, our urban agglomerations rely upon being able to harvest energy cheaply and easily from the, the cities and then develop it further. And it's, I think without doubt... Uh, we've got too many people on the planet, too many urban agglomerations, and I think we're going to see ourselves going in reverse. Um, but we'd use less energy if we're all in cities. If we're all close to each other, we, do, yeah. we need to travel less. We can keep each other warm. You can cuddle a neighbour. You can have showers with the neighbour. You know, there's... All- <laughs> <laughs> we can. We need less energy if we're spread out. We need to have a smiley that's been transmitted by a radio tele a radio uh, a microphone here <laughs> for some of those concepts. But yeah, I think that 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 to me is the danger that they're certainly unequal. And I mean, I think the United States problem is that the, the power of your states is too high, and the political corruption in America is too extreme. And that is a large part of why you're seeing the decline in the cities there. But what concerns me the future is that uh, if we do start seeing real ecological breakdown, then cities themselves are unsustainable without the countryside. Uh, the countryside in that sense is more sustainable. So I've got a feeling our cities are going to decline compared to the rural areas in the future, and it won't exactly be a comfortable decline. Uh, interesting to see right now cities are greener than uh, our suburbs, certainly, or rural areas. Just suburbs are the suburbs are the deadly. Yeah. I see what you're saying. But absolutely, we can. We need more sensible policies across the board with this cleaner energy policies. Uh, and uh, I think a move to a service economy could, in fact, reduce uh, that the power footprint that we depend on. But I, we didn't talk about environment, and I know that's something you are extremely knowledgeable and passionate about. I I worry about that a lot too. I think cities 
actually have some hope in this uh, crazed, uh, carbonized world that we're in. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's a good read. It's called Unequal Cities from uh, Richard McGahey, Overcoming Anti-Urban Bias to Reduce Inequality in the United States. Uh, good to talk, Richard or Rick. Good to have you on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having okay. me. Welcome. And next week, I think we might return to a, a very familiar ground, a lot of it to do with cities, actually. House prices, Australian house prices are starting to fall. Well, it's happening everywhere in the world, but they are still much higher than they were before the pandemic. So that age-old question, when does the housing bubble burst uh, and how much of the, uh, the, the uh, our discretionary income is now getting tied up in housing? And what does that do to the broader economy? All those questions, we've visited them before, but let's get back to them again next week on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.